Hey everybody, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this is episode number 149, January 2022. Happy New Year, y'all. Let's hope 22 brings us positive change, greater compassion for our fellow humans of all variations, and lots more theater. This month, we are featuring Rachel Feeney Williams, a playwright and founder of the Facebook group Literary and Discourse Society. Rachel is a very busy playwright, as you will find, recently published, and, like a few other wonderful folks, have taken the lead and filled the need for theater enthusiasts to stay in touch and exercise their creativity during this awful pandemic. The presence on Facebook, um, this is a new thing for a lot of people, so how did you fall into this? Um, well, it was started by myself and a another woman who, another director who I know, uh, Katie Jones, who's based out in a small village in Broadcliffe in Devon, where I'm from. Um, she and I both love theatre. She has actually directed my pieces before, and uh, a few months into lockdown, we had a chat and decided that. We needed to do something to kind of bring theatre back into our lives. So we got in contact with a few people we knew, um, started hosting meetings on Zoom, um, and then then the Facebook group came, and before we knew where we were, we had um, over 100 members all over the world, and it's been running pretty much every Sunday for um, a year and a half now. Um, and I say it started a lot with mostly uh, work of mine, but then slowly we drew in more and more playwrights, obviously yourself being included. Mm. Um, and the, the bigger it became, the less likely it's, you started to see an end, really, because initially when it started, we thought, OK, well, this will kind of see us through the whole lockdown COVID thing and then it'll be finished. But we're here 18 months later and a lot of the restrictions have been lifted and people are still turning up week on week to chat and read and it's just so great that it's continued with the following that it has in my so, opinion <laughs> <laughs> of course Are you surprised that it's lasted this long um yeah because obviously i say it's, it's a weekly commitment and i know it's only sort of a few hours a week but that's a hell of a lot of to take out of people's lives and um some people obviously drip in and dip out every now and again yeah. but um there are people like obviously myself because i host them but um barbara uh Guinan, who's based in new york city she has right. been there pretty much every sunday since its inception uh as a reader and yeah people love it i've i've not had a single negative thing said about it <laughs> yeah barbara is she's quite a good reader as well too it's... do you think she keeps saying she's not an actress but she does she brings life to everything she reads she does i mean they all do yeah 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 no it's it's fun so what does it take for you to get this thing going every week because uh, it's basically just you running this thing so yeah has that impacted your probably already busy life initially it was uh, more problematic because we had less works available and you become very much aware that it's your your stuff week in week out so i kind of did a, i do a push every so often to the playwrights who are within our facebook group and that are still out there who haven't joined do come to us and say okay i've got this one piece um and then 
we read it and hopefully they come back with more and say so we've built up quite a, a catalogue of work so that when I plan the weeks ahead it's always a variety and yeah other than that it's just say keeping people informed which uh, when you are used to a life of social media it's it's five minutes on the computer maybe once a week and then the Sunday session itself and for what is essentially minimal effort from my part I just feel like it's become such a huge thing it does seem like a huge thing because it does happen every week and it's that's not easy to maintain especially when you're planning and putting everything together thank god for social media um (laughs) since this awful pandemic is has hit it's completely disrupted theater as we know it um, this has been a theme on you know, that the people have been talking about for the past year and a half, eighteen months. Uh, where are we going to? You know, where are we going to perform? Where's my work going to be done? And who's going to act? And can we get together? And do we only have to write plays with masks in them? I mean, how many plays about bank robberies can you write? <laughs> it's uh... but I, I think in a way it also became kind of an escape from the whole. COVID lockdown thing because for those sort of two three hours a week we don't really discuss it in as in as much detail as I imagine people do during their kind of regular lives I mean we occasionally when there's obviously big pieces of news that we have a a bit of a discussion but the, the the sessions are dominated by writing and that's what they're for yeah there's been quite a quite an array of play types and subject matter and we go from the linear the the basic you know this is really easy to follow to things that are much more metaphysical much more abstract and i think it's a wonderful thing about literary discourse that all of that stuff is welcomed yeah and all of it is read and everybody's got a chance to get their scribblings out into the world and to hear what they sound like, because that makes such a difference from just gazing at it on the page. Sometimes it's a complete difference. You can hear it as a writer when when lines don't make sense. They may, they may look right on the page, but the second someone it's also, if someone's reading a line and they're falling over the words, you can tell that's not going to get any better because those words just, they don't fit right together. Yeah. But if you were going to have an actor performing it, you'd get hit with the same issue if they keep falling over the words. So it's, it kind of helps the editing process as well. That's, I think it's a, a wonderful step for every playwright to you know to hear their work. Because most of the time, it's actually easier now, I think, with COVID and with social media and groups like this. For a lot of folks, there are more opportunities to get their work done because... Normally, you'd have to wait for everybody to get together and go to one place and get a space to do it yeah. and bring bagels and lifesavers or whatever it happens to be. <laughs> and uh, now it's just, all right, here's the Zoom link. Here's your part. In this case, considering that most of theater has been completely disrupted and destroyed for the past 18 months, this is one of the yeah. side benefits that kind of outweighs the, 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 the problem. Yeah, because say we people keep saying how the world is getting smaller because of the internet and because of social media. But you, as a playwright living in Britain, I would never have imagined meeting 
playwrights from, as I say, Costa Rica, where you're from, New York, mm. Seattle, Canada. Uh, we had a guy from Thailand at one point, and you just you never imagine meeting these people in normal circumstances. And that's what I, that's one of the major silver linings to this whole pandemic thing is that Zoom has become such a big part of our lives, and it has made the world so much smaller when it comes to sharing creativity and creative ideas. Have you learned anything from any of these disparate folks from around the world that has stuck <laughs> with you? I mean. Because all of a sudden, we're like you said, we're getting points of view that we normally wouldn't get. Um, for me, uh, I always find it interesting when someone with an American accent reads one of my plays because there are a lot of. Um, I had I had one of my plays um, performed of um, virtually uh, in New York a few weeks ago, yeah. and um, I met and I had a Zoom call with them beforehand, and they said um, we may remove some of the Englishisms. Um, and I've never heard this word before in my life, but apparently that's the thing that Americans call English words in, obviously in plays or TV shows, that wouldn't fit an American accent. It's like um, Americans don't tend, tend to use the phrase bloody. So bloody hell, bloody this, bloody that. Um, Americans right. don't really tend to say that word. Well, those um, of us who grew up watching Monty Python and a lot of... English, UK, British, you know, television programs to us, it's pretty natural because we've heard mm. it so much. But yeah, I mean, saying this this bloody work job that I'm doing right now, it yeah, sound a little. You know, it's a little very bad. much an, Eng an Englishism, as they as they call yeah. it. Englishism, wow, a, a different language. Englishism, <laughs> but yeah. So when when I when I have American um, members reading my work, it's yeah. interesting because it's. It sometimes gets a different emphasis on the sentence that I wouldn't have heard because it's all been, until then, I've always heard it in my head in a British accent. Yeah. Well, having having it in your head is one thing. Seeing it, you know, or hearing it from other people. Yeah. It's completely different. I love that because everything in my head is almost perfect. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm such a good writer inside <laughs> my own head. But once I hear other people work the play, I think, yeah, okay, that's got to go. That needs it. I yeah, I thought that line was so brilliant, and yet it keeps falling flat. So, but it's a learning at, at the same at the same time, you also discover things about characters that you wouldn't have thought of. So when we read um, Would You a few weeks ago, and you read um, Sebastian, right? Um, I when I first wrote it, imagined all the characters with various kind of levels of British accent. And then when I came away, I thought, you know what, Sebastian would sound amazing with an American accent because <laughs> it was it was sounded perfect the way you did it. Thank you. Thank you. I I really liked that part. I had read it before, but I had not read it out loud. And once I started reading it out loud, I started trying to put the character together. Who is this guy? What's his speech pattern? What's his what's his vocal pattern? How does he fit in? And how do I make him, because, you know, until you get to the end, you don't know if he's evil, if he's good, what kind of thing he's offering, because it never really comes through to the end. So you try and figure out what's the best way to do these lines that are true to the, I guess, the original personality that you came up with. And you and I never talked about this beforehand. So for me, it was kind of like a road to discovery thing. But I think that's the other great thing is that you have all the readers have a choice of whether the work, the scripts we read are read cold or not. 
So I know we have a few who download them in advance uh, and read them. Mm-hmm. Some literally download them on the night and read them um, as they are. And it's always interesting, I find, the comparison between the two um, because some you find there is a lot more emotion and kind of the right amount of emphasis for those who've read the script before. But at the same time, you also discover more about the lines from someone who's reading them for the first time because yeah, it goes back to again the whole thing of having like if you fall if they're falling over words or sentences don't quite fit you'll never see that as much as someone who's reading those lines for the first time true i almost always pre-read everything and it's <laughs> nice to know what's actually going to be read um so i get to have some kind of a, an idea about it and once once or twice i've been there and i did not have a chance to to do it and then i had a cold read and that was a, always an interesting thing because i'm doing i'm doing making the discovery line by line and everybody else in the play is also making discoveries so <laughs> yeah it's 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 an interesting thing you also direct and i'm just wondering how that how one affects the other as a playwright having the director in your head or being the director having the playwright in your head how do you yeah. manage that do they work together do they support each other i've had a couple of different experiences regarding the direction of my pieces either um i have literally handed the piece over to a director either um by email or face to face and i have never seen the thing again until i've gone to see it on the night and if they have any questions they can i've said they can come to me but normally it's a case of this is your this is your show you you run with it the dangerous one i found is when i've directed plays that i've written um because you see the idea so clearly when you're writing it and you just think that nothing can ever deviate from that but of course with kind of casting or space limitations or even budget limitations you kind of have to shrink your ideas down or at least be somewhat flexible with them so it is a learning curve for me as much as that I have to be able to kind of, as you say, turn off the right of voice in my head. Mm. If I'm ever directing something I've written, I will always have a number two who will say, no, you're being, you're being silly now. <laughs> kind, mm. kind of hold, hold me to the reins almost, as it were, because write, writers do get very precious about our work when we are heavily involved. I've noticed that. And I think yes. sometimes you do need someone to poke you with a bit of reality every now and then. It's not always possible, depending upon the playwright. Um, mm. People are very protective about their work, and they want it done exactly the way it's in their head, and that's not always possible. I always think it's it's a way of discovery, and I, I personally hate directing my own work. I'd rather have somebody else do it because I want to see it through somebody oh, else's yeah. eyes. Yeah, yeah it's, it's interesting because having to direct one's own work and then get the feedback, because what's in your head goes out to the actor's, and the actors give you back something different. And there you are thinking, that was not what I thought of originally, but it might work. I always look for a way to make the play grow somehow. But. Yeah. And there's always a case where actors will turn to you and ask why a, a character says a certain thing. Mm-hmm. And they'll explain why it doesn't seem to make sense to them. And then you think about it and you go, well, actually, they're right. That doesn't make any sense at all. And then you maybe either change the line around or take it out altogether and a lot of the time the play would never be exactly the same 
going out on a stage as it was when it first went into the rehearsal room. And as you say, it's it's a growth process, which is even better for the yeah. for the play, if nothing for nothing else. So, how long have you actually been engaged in this vocation <laughs> of theatre? What got you started? <laughs> uh, I co-wrote, co-produced, um, and co-directed mm. my first piece um, at university way back in two thousand and eight, um, which went very well. Um, and then I kind of had a as kind of sabbatical for about four years. Then in 2012, I kind of started it up again and again directed and wrote, uh, directed one of my own pieces at a festival. And then again, it's been kind of a slower process before the pandemic. It, it was kind of every few months or so, I come up with a new idea and sometimes I'd write an entire, entire script without deferring from it. Sometimes I'd write a few scenes plan the entire play but then never really get the get to the point I get that that hit the wall of writer's block and then go no no this is going in the unfinished folder Mm. um but it wasn't really until lockdown hit that I really started in my stride because I um I can uh today I've completed three uh play a day um challenges um one in february one in april and then one in september as they sound you write a a play a day um the one back in february was um through an external uh organization and that was based on a brief that they set and then the one back in april was based on uh, a different animated gif every day and then the one in september was just based on a word and even that um i set up a facebook group for that mainly so i'd have some sort of accountability almost to say see I have posted every day I have done it (laughs) um and then slowly but surely it gained more and more people um and yeah well some didn't write every day some didn't write plays some just posted things it was just nice to have that sense of community which is the same for literary and discourse and I think that's one of the great things that you do have to keep going even despite all the restrictions and chaos we are living in while we may be a while before we get back to full normalcy as far as at least amateur theatre is concerned as long as you keep that type of community going and keep it alive then that's all all you really need true I, playwright is by its nature one of the loneliest professions and <laughs> yeah well i mean basically you know you sit there and just wait for the brilliant words to come spilling out onto the page and sometimes you're successful and a lot of times you're not theater in itself is and i will defend this a collaborative profession collaborative vocation not at every stage because i think playwriting is mostly done solitary but to have people aware that you are attempting this okay first of all a play a day for what 30 days Mm -hmm. each one of these things February was 28, uh, April was 30, and I think September was the same, 30 days. So it's with 80, 88 plays total over the three. Okay, because I'm kind of sitting here staggered by the amount <laughs> of writing that you've done. 88 plays, and these are short plays I'm I'm. I've, course right yes they are they are all short plays uh, a couple of them did end up being just monologues um but 
what's been great for me is bringing them to the Sunday group. They some a uh, couple of them are in the process of expansion. So uh, memory, which we read, which was a, mm-hmm. a police crime piece, started out as sixteen pages. Um, it then came to be read, and everyone said, "No, we need more. We need more of this." <laughs> so. And then kind of went away and it came back as a, a 40 page one act. So it's, yes, they are all, have all started life as short plays, but I think there's definitely room for some of them to expand. I'm, I'm just kind of staggered at the sheer volume of writing that you do. You obviously love to sit and write and <laughs> that's, you know. I mean, don't get me wrong. There it is an incredibly high uh, stress challenge because there is that pressure of having to have not necessarily a brilliant idea but at least an idea every day and you're sat there sometimes and it gets to sort of eight nine in the evening and you think oh my god where are you you're out there i know you are do you put a lot of pressure on yourself to make each idea brilliant or do you just run with whatever pushes itself to the front of your brain and starts waving its arms going hello I tend to, I tend to latch on to kind of the first idea that appears um, simply because there is a reason that it was the first one. And then if I can if I can turn that idea constructively into a play, then I will. Sometimes I have gotten half a page in and thought, no, this isn't gonna work, and then gone back and started again with something different. Um I would never say that all of these, all of the pieces came out perfect. Some of them came out a lot better than others. Um, There is a distinct moment um, as a writer when you know that one piece is always gonna be preferred, at least by you, over others. The first challenge I did, one of the briefs um, was a set of rules um, that you had to write the play for. So it's a set number of pages, um, a set number of words per line. Um, certain characters couldn't use certain letters. And there were about eight, ten rules that went like this. And um, <laughs> that one, I started about eight o'clock in the evening and I finished at three o'clock in the morning. And at one point, my partner came in at one and said, are you still doing this? And I I just broke. I was like, yes, I will finish it when I've finished it. I generally don't know how he puts up with me because pe- people say being a performer is stressful but being the partner of anyone involved in that um sector it's just the most stressful thing imaginable but i i always think that if i was ever to get this up to a professional level i'd probably be that stressed all the time creative process <laughs> has never been an easy one and yeah you're right yeah. because the artistic the, the spouses or partners of those who labor in you know the in in the arts that's a certain kind of purgatory that not everybody can do that because half the time you're away someplace you're not there you are in that labyrinth in your head where you are trying to find your way from one end to the other hoping it makes sense hoping that it's good hoping that the words are the right words and most artists spend so much time there and a lot of the conversation between them and their partners is what 
I'm sorry, what? I, I, I didn't hear you. What? But at the same time, they're also one of the few people who genuinely understand you because you what you don't you don't go through someone writing 87 plays without understanding a, at least a little bit of what the process is like um and over time he has gotten more involved like if i'm struggling for an idea he will ask me what the inspiration is supposed to be um and he'll make suggestions and i know he's kind of just trying to take the take the pressure off but it's quite nice to have someone there who even if just to bounce ideas off, even if they sound completely ridiculous. I can only imagine, yeah. It's different, I think, for a lot of folks. Um, I'm pretty much the exact opposite. Nobody sees anything until I'm done with the fifth draft. I never even let anyone know <laughs> what it is I'm writing about. Because I think if I let the words out of my mouth, they'll fly out of my head and I won't have all that stuff inside my head to keep mixing into this ridiculous... I know it's going to suck, but I can't stop writing it anyway kind of thing, you know? it's. Uh... But sometimes as a writer, you also need that external perspective as well as to whether something does sound ridiculous or not. Especially with humour as well, I find. Yeah, that's the that's the great. I say that's the great thing about literary discourse is they will tell that you can tell if it's funny. Yeah, it does it work the way it worked when I imagined it? And oh my god, it is funny! Yes, yay, terrific! I'm a real playwright. Yeah. How has your writing I mean, changed over this past year? Um, I mean, after doing all of these plays, because your determination and your commitment is staggering. Okay. I mean, seriously, to just sit down and do all of these plays, how has that changed you as 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 a writer? I think when the, the first piece that I ever wrote was uh, incredibly uh, dark, and then I held the gap for four years, and then I wrote mostly kind of humorous, farcical style pieces because mm -hmm. that's what I thought amateur theatre groups would do which, to be fair, is not really a stretch of the imagination. Right. Um, and then once I started the playwriting challenges, I thought, I have no idea if anyone's ever going to see these. I'm just going to write what I want to write, and I'm not pandering to anyone else. And that's why through the 87 pieces, they range right the way from, I say they go from monologues through humour, through tragedy. There are some, there are a couple of, I don't really like to call them political pieces, but they are heavily influenced by the recent events of, um, I say stuff like the the Me, the Me Too movement and yeah. the incidences with regards to casting couches and that kind of thing. I've got a couple of pieces that were influenced by that because just because say it it made me angry and it made me want to write about it and. I think one when you realise you're writing shorter pieces that potentially may never see the light of day, you realise you can just write for you, which is one of the massive reliefs of not having to do it professionally, which I think is probably yeah. one of the... I think, I think Roald Dahl um, said it best when he talked about becoming a professional writer and having to sit down for two, three hours a day at his typewriter and having to write I think that is the worst thing in the world because as much as during the challenges I knew I had to write something it didn't matter if what I wrote was very controversial very sad or ridiculously 
stupid it was only ever in theory gonna be me that would see it and I think that's the that's something that that's something that all writers should be able to do is write for the, themselves because as much as you know producing plays in in big theaters and on, on Broadway lovely you are to a certain degree pandering to someone else's opinions and normally that someone else is the someone with the money true yeah uh, it's uh, the writing for spec or the writing for writing specifically for what pleases most audiences yeah it's, it's kind of doing it backwards and but you were talking about controversy and politics and it's hard for anybody to go through the world these days without being affected by everything else that is happening you're, it's it's somewhere in the world it's going to impact your life yeah and i've noticed a lot of i've noticed and everybody else has noticed a lot of theaters these days are now looking for plays that speak to a certain audience written by a certain audience about certain subjects because theater is becoming more wide-reaching more egalitarian we've got there's a concerted effort to include people whose voices have not been heard. And a large part of that is voices of women who mm -hmm. have been neglected, sadly, uh, criminally neglected for so many years. While it's great to write the things that you want to make people laugh, there's also a huge market for plays about women's issues, about racial issues, about any kind of provocative sensitive political racial religious subject you can imagine the concern you kind of can get to there is that obviously you have the supportive general public who want to go and see the piece because it's an interesting subject or yeah. it's um a revolutionary style of theater but you will get people who will say it's being written for an agenda it's being written because this particular political group wants this to be this to be seen and that's the only reason it's seen the light of day which I think is is really unfair on the right to the themselves because if someone has gone has poured their heart and soul into a piece and then it's just dismissed as being a political agenda it just make, it makes you doubt your ability as a writer which makes it even worse so as as much as opening the doors to um unheard voices and unseen topics is brilliant and revolutionary it's it will work it will work and it will be brilliant to a certain degree but you will always get the doubters and, and the haters and those who oh, yeah. say it's all it's all political which is immensely frustrating i heard a podcast interview with a young black actress who was 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 to play hamlet in london um, and she was playing him as a him and she got a lot of kickback from um people saying why as her gender was she playing Hamlet why as her color was she playing Hamlet and it's just a case of when did it get to the point where we were questioning entertainment so much for its agenda like <laughs> as ridiculous as it sounds you don't go to the West End and see Mary Poppins and question its political agenda yeah true but one would <laughs> one would argue that Mary Poppins is maybe not as controversial in its political content and there are people who will argue that all art is political because art mm. is about life and art is about the things that vex us the things that trouble us the things that give us joy the things that we you know that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis 
but that's the thing of it is though is art is also all about perspective and the sense that if a if a play is coming out on a subject that you don't particularly approve of or has uh, characters in it that you don't particularly like then my philosophy is don't go and see it if you're not gonna, if you if you don't like it don't go and see it but then don't get up on your soapbox and say oh it's all political they're just trying to push this agenda because you don't know that none, none of us are in are in those rooms when that this, that decision gets made before we before i let you go i want to talk about an astounding thing and that is you just got published You've got your first, is this your first book of plays? Yes, um, I self-published a collection of 10 comedy plays uh, that I've written, all of which were written over the last year. So uh, they're all part of the Play Day challenges. Um, and yeah, I started with comedy pieces just because making people laugh is always sure. a great thing about theatre. And I think it gets more attention than something slightly more serious i may publish more depending on how this goes but yeah i as as of now i am an author technically (laughs) (laughs) how did it feel to hold the book for the first time it was amazing i um i i stay i stay at work from home that day to make sure i was there for delivery and i took them into my partner when he finished work and it was just it was just phenomenal and you never expect to see your name in print unless it's something that you've, you know, just printed out on a computer, but to have it kind of bound and mm. there and yeah. Kind of makes it official, doesn't it? Yeah. All of a sudden, yeah. you know, when you say I'm a playwright, it's I'm a playwright. But once you see your name on, let's say, either a poster or a book and all of a sudden playwright has a capital P. Yeah where it didn't before. How's the reception been for this? Um, It's been good. I've, I mean, I didn't have many printed because I know that I am still on the large scale. I am still unknown, but I mean, the support I've had from uh, friends, family, fellow playwrights has just been phenomenal. Um, I actually uh, posted today, um, half of the printed copies have already sold and they've gone across five countries slash states. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Um, yeah. Which is just incredible. <laughs> it's just so surreal. And again, the thing is, it wasn't even my idea. Um, my partner asked me what the process was and I started looking into it. Um, and yeah, he just kept pushing, saying, you should do this, you should do this. And it's like, but what if no one buys it? What if just you and my mom buy it and that's it? <laughs> and yeah. he was like, well, then we'll have a box of, you know, 28 books. <laughs> Christmas presents, um, birthday presents. Yeah, every, that's what everyone's getting for Christmas now. Um, <laughs> but no, I may say otherwise, it's been it's been really great. And it's just so nice to have something tangible, I guess. Yeah. Like my computers all die tomorrow, then at least I have something tangible to prove that I wrote plays once. <laughs> well, I think there's always going to be more than that. But yeah, it's really nice. It's just, I think what the word you use, tangible, is the thing. It's a book with a capital B, just like Playwright with a capital yeah. B. Um, and it's official because success in this business is, 
it's a little difficult. So, Rachel Feeney Williams, this has been a joy. Thank you so much for coming in and talking to us about your work and playwriting in general, which is something I could talk about forever. But it's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, kids, thanks for listening to On Stage, Off Stage. On Stage, Off Stage is produced monthly, and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes and Spotify. If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OnOffStage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or know of someone in the theater who'd make some seriously good chat, by all means, send us a note at info at onstageoffstage.org. I'm George Sapio. Thank you once again for listening. And please, stay safe, be careful, not only for yourself, but for those with whom we all share this rock. And as always, happy theatering to all of you. <laughs>